Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Church of the Bay Area. I am thankful for Pastor Roger as he goes with his son and my own son to one of his uh, favorite pastimes. He's going camping with them to Camp Hume. So please keep him, uh, my boy, and also Aiden in your prayers this week. Uh, Pray that they would just have a very fruitful and wonderful time at this Christian camp in which they can meet people uh, just from all over the place, all over the state, I, I don't even know if it's all over the country, but all over the state, who will come and worship the Lord together. And hopefully they'll be able to see just even a glimpse uh, of heaven where they know that other people around the state will be able to worship alongside, that they love the Lord. And at such a young age, they'll be able to enjoy it together. Well, as a quick reminder, when I was last up here, we were learning about the qualities of a church elder. These were the characteristics of individuals that God wanted to lead his church, and he didn't just allow anybody to do it. Instead, and unlike the hundred of self-help books out there, unlike the thousands of articles that are written on leadership, God gives us the exact characteristics, basically the gold standard of what it means to be the perfect or the ultimate biblical leader. Now, while this applies to, of course, people in leadership, we as Christian believers, we as part of the church, we, of course, should strive to obtain these characteristics, to practice these characteristics as well. We were looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and he gives us specifically 15 characteristics of biblical leadership, 15 characteristics of perfect of biblical leadership. And the last time we were here, we studied three of those 15 characteristics that dealt with relationship requirements. The first was that the elder had to have an excellent or genuine reputation with those inside and outside his community. This was taken from the text above reproach. The second relationship requirement was that he had to have an excellent or be an excellent spouse. This was taken from the text of the husband of one wife. And the third was he had to have been an excellent parent. That was taken from the text of having children who believe. After the list of these three relationship requirements, he now goes into a list of qualifications in verse 7, where you will see that I've entitled the easiest, quote-unquote, easiest leadership characteristics. These are the rules. These are the commands that God is telling us simply that we can't do something. Right? It's easy, and I say it's easy, it's because all we have to do is not do it. Stop yourselves from doing it. It seems really simple. But of course, and as you all know, that I put this in quotation marks as easiest. And why I say it's easiest, too, is that if you don't do it, you know that you'll be following God's will. You know that you will be in the good graces of God. You know that you will be honoring Him And you'll be held in such esteem, maybe not necessarily here on earth, but certainly in the kingdoms to come. But ironically, when I put easiest, I put in quote, it's because when we are told usually not to do something, it can be incredibly difficult to do it, right? It can be incredibly difficult to obey. As most of you know that I'm a dad. I tell my kids all the time, don't do something. Don't touch the cookies. Don't eat the candy. Don't turn on the TV. Don't put that in your mouth. They know in the same way, if they obey, then riches behold them. Mom and dad will be able to trust them. They know that come Christmas time, they're on the good 
not on the naughty list, so they're going to get the presents. They know we'll praise them to our friends, and ultimately, they'll probably get the cookie, right? But as all of you know, when someone tells you not to do something, there's almost an urge, right? There's this pull, there's this draw that says, no, I really want to do it. The struggle applies to adults as well. If I told you don't watch that movie, the back of your head, you're probably like, oh, why not? I wonder what it's all about. If I told you don't read that, don't open that, don't look at that, don't go there, you're going to go, well, why not? What's up over there? The Bible is very clear even with these examples. From the very first act of Adam and Eve, what was the instruction? Do not eat from the tree of good and evil. And of course, what does Eve, Adam and Eve do? They do the opposite. Sodom and Gomorrah was a sinful city. Lot and his wife lived there. The command that God gave them when it was sinful that you should turn away from there was escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the surrounding area. She was told not to look behind, but what does she do? On her way out running from Sodom and Gomorrah, she has to take that one last look. And of course, she turns into a pillar of salt. When we go through these commands, they're don't commands, I hope they are in fact easy for you. But for the rest of us mere mortals, I, I, for the rest of us mere mortals, I, if you do struggle, I want you to take hope that in recognizing these characteristics, you can begin to see where you might be deficient and where we might be able to ask the Holy Spirit for help. We want our lives to be a biblical example of Christian leadership, whether we're in a position of leadership or not. But when any one of these five vices controls a person's life, then it disqualifies him from being an elder in the church. So let's find out what these five easy characteristics are in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Turn with me there. We're going to read from the New American Standard Version. I'll read the entirety of, again, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, but our focus will be in verse 7. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And here we go, verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Again, our focus will be on verse 7, and these are five easy leadership characteristics. Five easy leadership characteristics. The first characteristic is do not be selfish. Do not be selfish. And we take this from the word not self-willed. So a self-willed man, or I would say even a woman, is a self-centered or a selfish person. He wants his own way. He's stubborn. Usually they're arrogant. Usually they're inconsiderate of people. They're uh, overly assertive And oftentimes, they're ungracious just to people who always disagree with them. We know these people, right? There are bosses. Sometimes there are coworkers. Maybe there are parents. Sometimes there are kids. 
Not mine, but dare I even say it, maybe even our spouses. A self-willed person is usually not a team player, and of course being a team player is essential to being part of leadership in God's church. And we've got to remember that the local congregation belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the individual elder. And so when someone is self-willed or selfish, he's basically insisting that he have his own way and not God's way. 2 Peter 2.10 says that a self-willed man will scatter God's sheep because he's unyielding, he's overbearing, and blind to the feelings and opinions of others. Christ has called all of us to do the exact opposite of being self-willed. And he tells us this exactly in Matthew 16, 24, where he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And he goes on to take up his cross and follow me. So deny himself. So that is to deny your own interests, your own priorities, your own dreams and passion for the sake of God's will. Denying yourself generally means you have to be an other-centered person, right? Not looking towards yourself. We're usually looking to the will of God. And Christ gives us a perfect example of this on the cross. We know that just before he gets to the cross, he prays to his father. And he says that, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not I will, but as you will. This was the son's desire, to listen to his father, even if it meant rejection, even if it meant pain, torture, even to the point of death. It was so that he could do his father's will, and how humbling this is for us, are we willing to basically endure the same thing? Pain, torture, rejection, and even death for the sake of our father's will. Did you know that self-will appears in the Old Testament only one other time? And that's out of Genesis 49, verse 6. It's an absolutely crazy scene where Jacob, and so Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, has 12 sons. At some point in his life, as he gets older, he gathers all of his 12 sons together, and he has the most amazing ability to tell each of his 12 sons what exactly is going to happen to them and their respective tribes. So this is Jacob. He's got 12 sons, and this will eventually be known, or they will be eventually known as the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You've heard of this before. And as he sits there, he's able to tell each of them what exactly is going to happen in their future. Absolutely incredible scene. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 through 4. And I want you to be able to see what he is going to tell his sons. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 through 4. And before he talks to Reuben, this is his firstborn son. As you all know, the firstborn son is someone who usually gets all the blessing, right? Or a majority of the blessing. The firstborn son is the one who gets all of the, or most of the inheritance, now, let's go to verses 3 through 4. We're going to figure out what does Jacob actually say to Reuben, this firstborn son. Genesis 49, verses 3 through 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn son, my might 
and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So far, so good. Sounds really good here. But now he goes, uncontrolled as water. That doesn't sound good, right? That, there's something foreboding about that. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Jacob here is telling him, you lost your birthright because of your sin. And do you know what that sin was? He slept with his father's prostitute. Okay? He slept with his father's prostitute. And I'll just have a side note over here. Anybody who says, and I, I get this sometimes, the Bible's boring or it's uninteresting or the stories are not, you know, they don't actually relate to the human drama, they're absolutely wrong. The Bible and the Bible characteristics and the stories that we see here absolutely define the human heart. They define how much evilness we have inside us, but also how much good we can have in us. Because if I told you that a son is not getting a father's inheritance because he slept with his father's prostitute, you'd probably look at me like, like, stop, slow down. I have several questions here. Where are we even going with this, right? So anyways, that's just my own side note. But because Reuben committed this sin, his action, because he committed this sin, the consequences are that I do believe he's mentioned little in Israelite history. His tribe was very little mentioned. So Reuben doesn't produce a judge. He doesn't produce a prophet. He doesn't produce a military leader or other, any other important person. And it goes on. Let's go to the second and third born here now, Simeon and Levi. And this is where you will see the only other instance of the word self-willed in the Old Testament. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 6. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory, let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Long story short, drama again, crazy side note, their sister now, Dinah, was raped. Their sister was raped raped by the person by the name of Shechem in the land of Shechem. And so in response, Simeon and Levi, the, thir- the second and the third sons, both take their swords now, go into the land of Shechem, and decide to massacre all of the males inside this city. And when it says self-will, they lame oxen, it means to cut off like an animal's tendon to make it useless. They massacre all of the males. They plunder all the city. In their own self-will, they did what was re- unreasonable in the Lord's eyes. They went beyond what was basically permitted in the Mosaic law for this type of crime. In their own self-will, they became violent, unreasonable. They didn't trust in God's provisions or even God's ability to take vengeance for them. Because they failed in their own self-will, neither Simeon or Levi can be considered one where they could have, they were, they were not designated any type of land in the region. They were, both of the tribes were scattered throughout Israel. 
Simeon became the smallest tribe in the second census of Moses. He was omitted from the blessing of Moses. He later had to share a territory with Judah. And this is how, as most of you know, Judah is actually the fourth-born person, fourth-born tribe. He gets the biggest uh, tribe. And, of course, Jesus is born now out of the tribe of Judah. He gets that incredible blessing. That's not to say that none of the tribes didn't have any blessing. Of course, the tribe of Levi is a priestly tribe. They get to participate in God's blessings, but certainly not to the extent that they possibly could have been. Recognizing self-will can sometimes even be difficult for all of us these days because we define self-will in our society as maybe someone who's a go-getter, someone who sets a vision, who says, I can dream what I want, and so I'm going to get it and achieve it for myself. But usually, when we say those things, it's at the end where we say, and what does God really want out of this? Instead of actually putting it at the beginning, right? We usually develop, this is what we want, this is our goal, this is the vision that we want to set, and we always say, okay, I've determined all these things, but now what is God's will? Instead of actually putting in the beginning, well, what is God's will first? And I often hear people saying it's really tough to decipher God's will, right? It can be a hard thing to figure out. I disagree. (laughs) I do believe that the Bible is very clear in, in a number of places that God wants or has established his will. I do believe that God has given us our own consciences to understand what his will is, and he's given us even our own morality to that. And here, and here is how it's applied. When God, when God, what is God's will when he gives you money? Do you think it's to spend it recklessly on yourself? Or is it to be sacrificial to help others? What is God's will when he gives you children? Is it so that, is it so that you can leave a legacy for yourself, possibly boost your own ego? Or do you think it's actually to create disciples of all the nations? What is God's will when he gives you cancer? Do you think it's so that he wants you to curse him? He wants you to criticize him? Or do you think it's because he wants you to praise him in difficulty, to draw him closer to you? What is his will when he takes your job away from you? Or let's say when he even gives you retirement. Do you think his will is so that you can sit on the beach and drink cranberry juice and watch the waters? (laughs) Or do you think... It's actually so that you can use the time to dwell and be in God's word to know that you have now the time to be with God's people. Knowing God's will is more apparent than you think. That's not to say that I don't understand that there are difficult situations and we need to take the time for that. But for those of us who are unfamiliar with it, here's a few more. God's will, and I'll tell you this, is to meditate on his word day and night. Psalm Psalm 1 verse 2. God's will is to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 17. God's will is not to complain about stuff. We learned this last week from Pastor Roger, James 5, verses 9 through 11. God's will is to work hard. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Ask for the Lord rather than men. Our life, God's will in our life is to be an act of spiritual worship out of Romans 12, 1 through 2, where he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. All of these things become easy 
because we know where we can figure out God's will. So, don't be selfish. God has given us the freedom and power to do His will, not to do as we want, but of course how He wants. So the second of the easiest characteristics is don't be bitter. Don't be bitter. Here the word is not quick-tempered, not quick-tempered. A quick-tempered person is one who is generally easily angered. He's, he or she is easily provoked. His first and natural tendency is toward anger. And I repeat this on purpose. You know these type of people. They're your bosses. They're your coworkers. They're your spouses, maybe even your kids and your parents. One of God's attributes we know is that he is slow to anger, so all of us must be as well. In fact, the Bible gives many warnings against people who are quick angered. The anger of man does not achieve the foolishness of God. It calls a person who easily loses his temper a fool. Describes someone who is angry, a city whose walls are broken down. Usually a person who's got a hot temper is at odds with everybody around him. Anything can set this person off. Usually when we think about sin, we think of sin as a one-time event. Right? You may think, okay, I want to steal, I'm going to do this, it's a one-time event. So if something's causing me to do this one-time event, I'm going to stop it. The Bible, out of Proverbs 29, 22, says that an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds, abounds in transgressions. So we're not talking about a one-time sin. You know clearly from the Bible that if you are hot-tempered and you are quick-tempered or you're short-tempered with people, you will abound in transgressions. You will multiply in sinfulness. This is something and, and a warning that will be very convicting to help us to stay away from. I was kind of going through this too. Anger actually has a lot of depth to it, right? Sometimes we think of anger as just a one-time flash. Sometimes we think it's a one-time blow-up. You're not like this. You're horrible. You don't listen to me. You don't do this. We usually think of that just a surface-level type thing. But in the Greek, the word is orgolos. And it actually refers to a more settled or nurturing, uh, long-standing state of anger. And this is why I bring out the idea of a bitter person. It's usually a person who's simmering with bitterness, and they're always ready to blow up at somebody. The man who has bitterness is obviously not ready to be in Christian leadership. Shepherds will oftentimes, oftentimes be criticized, oftentimes be treated poorly, or maybe a combination of both, or even have that impression of it. And it is their job to not be hot-tempered about that. It's important to note that the Bible indicates that anger is a valid emotion, and it's not necessarily always sinful. Of course, God allows for righteous anger, but that's with the proper focus, proper motivation, proper control, and proper duration and result with people. But our problem is not so much that we get angry at the sin. It's that our sin makes us lose our temper. And it's usually because anger is when people are not getting their way. It's not trusting in God's will and what God has allowed in his own sovereignty. And isn't it interesting that we often feel justified in losing our temper, particularly when someone has either hurt or offended us? This is why 
you know, applicably for this uh, characteristic, it's actually, I do believe, very important to probe the anger that we have in our own uh, lives. So I've posed a few questions here. Why do you get mad when someone cuts you off on the road? And for some of you, this may not apply, but I just tried to think of a few examples. Why do you get mad when your significant other doesn't listen to you or do what you want? Why do you get mad or angry when the customer service person at an airline or a hotel doesn't necessarily give you what you want? Right? It's important to probe the question of why. I'll give you an example. As you all know, as I said it before, I'm a dad. If I give the instruction to my kids and I say, don't pour the milk, right? It's these gallon milk jugs at Costco. They're really heavy. So you open it. They pour the milk. And of course, what happens? It overflows or everything spills out. Naturally, I might get angry and... The normal, then some people here might say, well, you're angry because they disobeyed, right? They were rebellious, and so you're just mad at that. Yes, that's probably partially true, but if I dig deeper, right, if I go more in depth, I begin to realize that it's actually probably more of my pride. And you think about it like this. I know that our, my kids are sinful, unlike some parents today, but <laughs> I know that my kids are sinful, and they will do bad things. So I should fully expect that they are going to do bad things. And when they do bad things, I fully know that it is within God's provisions. But I still get angry about it. Why? Because of my own pride. Because it's inconvenient that I have to clean it up. Because now my day is interrupted, and so I can't continue with what I am doing. Maybe it makes me look bad as a parent. Right? So it shows that I cannot control my own children. I'm foolish to try to get angry and to think that this all happened outside of God's will. But, you know, as I'm cleaning up the milk, and again, as a side note, milk is very difficult to clean up. There's all kinds of fats in it, and it, it, I have to do more than just cleaning up water. But the Bible says that someone who is slow to anger has great understanding. So if we're trying to combat anger, we have to understand all of these different aspects and ask ourselves ahead of time, what makes you tick, right? What makes you angry? What makes us bitter? And by doing that and having a proper understanding of the word of God, then we can be able to attack it properly. We are instructed to forgive. We're instructed not to yield to anger or to vengeance. We're expected to ultimately know that love covers a multitude of, of sins. And that's out of 1 Peter 4.8. So let me encourage any of you who are struggling with being bitter or anger to take the time, and hopefully in your small groups this week as well, take your time, submit yourselves to the Holy Spirit, and understand the ultimate example that is set before us. You know, I just think, as Jesus goes up to the cross, he's spit on, he's nailed on, he's insulted, he's tortured, he's killed, all without justification all without justification. And what is his response? He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get angry. He has sympathy for them, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. How humbling an example that is. And hopefully that makes it easy for us to respond in the same way. That's the second characteristic. Do not be bitter. The third is, do not be intoxicated. 
not addicted to wine. Now here, Paul uses strong language, which here means not preoccupied or overindulgent with wine. Drunkenness is a sin, and drunk people require church discipline. A person in a position of trust or someone who actually listens to their own congregation cannot be someone who's addicted to wine. It's reported that nearly half of murders, suicides, and accidental deaths in America are related to alcohol. One in four families has some problem with alcohol. Alcohol makes, is one of the largest health problems in America. The Bible has many warnings against it. And of course, it's probably not surprising today that it breaks up families, it reduces life expectancy, and it destroys people financially. Elders work with people who are troubled and who are difficult. So if they're drunk, that's not going to help anybody. Although the Bible has a lot to say about alcohol and drinking, it does not necessarily forbid a Christian from drinking wine or beer. Paul is prohibiting the abuse of wine or any other substance that would basically take their mind away from being able to focus on the testimony, but also on the work of God. So there's just a couple principles that I would encourage you to think about in your consumption of alcohol if you, in fact, do that. It's not to avoid drunkenness. That is out of Ephesians 5. It's not to, be, it's not to allow our bodies to be mastered by anything. That's out of 1 Corinthians 6. But it's also this. The Bible forbids a Christian from not doing anything that might offend other Christians or encourage them to sin against their conscience. That's out of Romans 12, 20 through 21. It says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Right? We want to lift up our brothers and sisters who may struggle with this type of addiction. It's also important, and I know that Pastor Roger has probably talked about this up here before, but I'd like to reemphasize, it's important to look at the context in which alcohol was consumed in the New Testament. In the New Testament, water was very, or was much more contaminated, right? We don't have, we don't have the modern filtering or the sanitization processes that we had today. There was a lot of bacteria and or viruses. People often drank wine because it was fermented. Fermentation was a way to disinfect water or disinfect any type of li- liquid. In 1 Timothy 5, Timothy, it is thought, initially avoided wine to be a good testimony. However, Paul instructs them, no, drink a little wine because it's actually better. It, it might help your stomach pains. He was having stomach pains, so he encouraged him to do it. Clearly, that's different from the purpose today. We drink, or people drink wine today because, not because of poor wa- water conditions, but they drink it because it tastes good or it might add to their meal. It complements them. Some people even want to get a buzz or something like that. It's a very different purpose. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying just be careful and prudent when you do consume it. In that day also, wine was fermented, again, containing alcohol, but not necessarily to the degree that it is today. Today we have modern distilleries. We have a way to increase the proofs, increase the alcohol content of, let's say, whiskey, 
of vodka, of tequila. Back in the day, they didn't have these processes, and so wine was a lot less potent than it is today. So today, when we drink, or when people drink, more or higher proof type of uh, alcohol, they're doing it for its effect, right? They're doing it for its drug type effect than back in the day when alcohol may have been consumed. So because of that, more caution is needed, and we just have to watch out uh, because there can be more danger. Many people say that I don't suffer from alcohol addiction, so thankfully, Chris, this doesn't apply to me. I think that this could also extend even past this. This verse, I believe, can even be applied to addictions to your phone, addictions to pornography, to food, to TV, to gossip, to money. It is key to be open and honest with the Lord. And how do we do this? Again, he makes it easy. God is, out of 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I do understand that addiction can be something that feels so hopeless to people. It's something that grabs you. It's something that you feel like, I cannot overcome. And I do understand that there's programs out there, such as AA or, or other organizations that attempt to do that. But the ultimate way is to be able to take this addiction and be able to lift it up to the Lord. Ident- God identifies this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And here's the kicker, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Addiction becomes easy. It becomes hopefully much more acceptable when we have Christ on our side in this. And this is the third easy characteristic. It's getting easier, right? The next is don't be violent. Do not be violent. Not addicted to wine. Not pugnacious. Pugnacious, great SAT word, if even kids take the SATs anymore, but for some of us who have no idea what the word means, in the English, the definition is having a quarrelsome or combative nature. The Greek word is derived from the verb to strike, to strike, right, to fight, to have a belligerent or a violent nature, to be combative in spirit. Somebody who's out of control. It also could mean somebody who's verbally combative as well. Paul was looking for people to lead his church who were controlled in their spirit, right? As you all know, a leader who, is, who will try to take things into their own hands and try to address any type of situation with any type of violence, that would disqualify him from leadership, absolutely, right? That's not the example that we're trying to set. And I do believe that this is actually put right next to not addicted to wine, because oftentimes, excessive alcohol consumption can lead to excessive, excessive violence. Elders, again, are often at the center of very tense and very difficult situations. Having an elder who goes ahead and tries to be violent against things or is responding with some sort of aggression is not going to help anybody. Instead, leaders are required to be gentle. And I appreciate Pastor Roger when he comes up here and he identifies, because we often think of masculinity sometimes as being brash, being bold, being violent. But when Pastor Roger comes up here, he has identified 
that the response in gentleness, the response in saying, I don't want to hit back at you, I don't want to lash out at you, I don't want to be violent at you, even though that is our heart's desire at times, is the harder thing to do, right? It's harder to take a step back and say, no, I'm not going to engage with you in that. I'm just going to be gentle and try to do the biblical and correct thing that's honoring to the Lord. We have to understand where the source of this type of fighting, fighting comes from, and this is out of James 4, verses 1 through 2. We studied this a couple of weeks, or eh, maybe a couple of months ago when we were studying through James, but James 4, verses 1 through 2 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. Here's the origins, you, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Argumentative people, combative people show that they always want to put their interests, their lust, their desires above everybody else's. We usually don't get what we want, and that's what leads to this type of violence. We see it when people buy life insurance and they take out their spouse. We, take it, we see it sometimes even in the kids, and they want an inheritance. We see it every day when people want to be robbed. They take things with a weapon because they don't have what that person have. I want you to think about your last argument you had with someone. Whose fault was it? Of course it was their fault, right? We know that they are to blame, but it was probably because that person wanted you to listen to their side. They wanted you to adopt their position. And they got mad because you didn't adopt it or you didn't listen to them. And, of course, the opposite is true. You were right. You wanted to be right. You were, of course, right in all of what you were thinking, and they didn't adopt your position, and so it was their fault, and so you get mad at it. That's just the same way as the things that we don't get. Why does it often escalate? We don't usually think about the consequences. I'm not sure. I think oftentimes when there's a pugnacious spirit, we don't think about the craziness that we can actually engage in. Uh, in my work, I often see a lot of road rage incidences where someone cuts you off in line, and it's absolutely amazing that the person gets so upset who got cut off that they may follow this person for miles and miles. They may then go around and start to yell obscenities and go crazy on them. And then they may cut the other person off again. And then they may stop, they get out of the car, they take the car, and they might even use it to endanger the people in there, endanger the people around them, all because he got cut off. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to be offended, right? It's okay to be hurt. We should expect to be hurt. Because thankfully, we have the most beautiful solution in how Christ sets the example again to make it easy for us out of Luke 6, 27 through 29. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This is really hard sometimes. I do understand that, right? But man, what an awesome, awesome response. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from an easy from him either. I know this can be hard, but it is easy with the Lord. So, don't be selfish, don't be bitter, don't be intoxicated, don't be violent, and finally, don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. The text here is not fond of sordid gain. 
not fond of sordid gain. The phrase here is translated from the word eiskrakerdos, which is a combination of two words, meaning filthy, shameful, and then gain or profit greed. This refers to a person who, without any type of honesty or any type of integrity, wants to take wealth, wants to take money at any cost. Cretans back in the day, and this was in Crete, didn't know, didn't care how they made money so long as they made it. Apparently, Cretans stuck to money like bees to honey. <laughs> if an overseer's then aim, so if an elder's aim is just to amass material things irrespective of how he does it, then he is not qualified to be an elder as someone who leads the church. Pharisees were lovers of money who, get this, they devoured widows' households. You know, sometimes people think it's the worst thing when you try to rob from a blind person, or it's the worst thing when you kick someone who's already down, maybe a homeless person. These people took from widows who didn't have anyone, anything or anything else and took their houses. Jesus even criticized the people in the temple who were trying to make a profit in God's temple. It is shocking to me that there is so much warning in the Bible about false teachers. What is consistent in a lot of false teachers? They want to take money from people. And it didn't occur to me that even with all this warning, people still tend to follow that. Think about this. And so I had not thought about this until we finally got to this section. It's actually quite easy to make money off of people in the church. Think about that. It's easy to make money off of people in the church, right? We deal with things that are in the spiritual realm. We think that are things that are sometimes unseen. But I, I asked myself the question, what would you pay to get spiritual blessings? Right? People want this. What would you pay to get spiritual blessings? People want this. People want worldly wealth, and so they think that if I pay a little bit into the church and these leaders, these false teachers convince them of that, then they think they're going to get it. People want emotional stability. Of course, people want to go to heaven. How much would you pay for that? People don't want their family members to go to hell, so they pay more money for that. If they sin and commit uh, adultery or lust, they're willing to pay a little bit more than if they use God's name in vain. These false teachers take advantage of people and everything outside of the Bible and misconstrue it by making money on things that are not necessarily seen. Money can be made on emotional or spiritual or even heavenly matters, and these are things that we need to watch out for in any type of elder or any type of pastor or leader who is trying to do this. I want to reassure you that your, uh, that your leadership here, we don't have any money, and we are doing okay. <laughs> okay. Instead, Paul holds himself in just the most amazing example. He says that I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. He says that I've brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and we have covering, with these we shall be content. Paul was faithful to the work that he did. His reward was, of course, for the sake of the ministry and seeing 
all of his brothers and sisters in the church, being able to use their abilities to serve one another, being able to grow in the understanding of godliness, his reward would be one day to be able to see all of his fruit through the Father in heaven, but also all the people he is willing to serve. And that should be the same focus of the leaders in the church. Well, these five commands are easy in the sense that we just don't need to do them, right? If we don't do them, we are good. But there's one additional step I'd like to add. We don't avoid alcoholism, bitterness, selfish violence for money for the sake of avoiding it, just for the sake of not doing it because it's wrong. It's legalism, right? We do it with a proper heart. We do it with a proper mind. And what heart is that? It is to love the Lord and to love his people. When I tell my kids not to eat the candy, and the kids decide to come up to me and say, and they whine about it. They sulk about it. They complain. They say, is the time up yet? Can I have a little bit? We know that their attitude is not in it. The kid who does this willingly, who says, yes, mom and dad, I want to honor you. I will not eat the candy for as long as possible. I can't wait to be able to know what your next instructions are. This is the person with the right attitude for mom and dad. <laughs> right? <laughs> We as adults and leaders and Christians have the privilege, and I call it privilege, to do the same. Not just to be good people, but to honor the Lord with our hearts and minds as we don't do these things. When we do not drink to intoxication, when we attempt to be content with money, when we refrain from sinning, let's do so with a desire to please the Lord, right? As we say no, let us not do so begrudgingly, but instead enthusiastically knowing that this is God's will. Otherwise, our efforts will just be for show. They're just to look good. We're trying to please man, and we're no better than how the world views a good person. The secret to being an excellent shepherd, an excellent Christian, is to love one another, but to love his sheep. He loves them. He loves them fervently. He's involved with him. And usually in this respect, he's happy to make sacrifices or what's considered sacrifices in many of these five don't commands. We know that if we are doing these for ourselves, it becomes very difficult. But if we do it because we want to honor the Lord and each other first, it becomes very easy. May the Holy Spirit help us to strive to do this in this manner. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks, Lord, for just identifying these five specific characteristics of leadership. We give you thanks, Lord, that we could take the time and understand where there might be pockets of sinfulness, pockets of selfishness that may get in the way of allowing us to have a pure heart. Thank you, Lord, for your clarity. Thank you, Lord, that we have one another in which to be able to honor you. Help us, Lord, and to understand the responses both from the Bible, but also even from the specific character of Jesus Christ, to understand that we can come back and love your word and love your people, even if it means that it looks weird or awkward or unconventional to the world. Teach us, Lord, that when we don't do things, to not just stop ourselves from doing it, but to take joy that we are honoring you. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to have this privilege to honor you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would just fill our hearts and minds, even today, as we strive to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.